0: One of the interesting things about Reeves' book is that he structures it such that the reader is, at first, only exposed to the same information that a reasonably tuned-in Beatles fan would have had at the time. Significantly later in the book, he clues us in on the most likely actual origin points for the conspiracy. So now let's rewind the clock a little bit and take a look at those candidates, starting with a serious but non-fatal car accident that really did happen in early 1967. That night, Paul was riding in Mick Jagger's car, along with some other stones, on the way to a party at Keith's house.
1: He feels so cool just saying that sentence.
0: Clearly, if you're going to the home of Keith Richards for a party with other rock stars, you're going to need to bring some drugs. Duh. But on the other hand, it wouldn't do for the cops to bust a bunch of rock legends driving in a car full of contraband. So they made a flunky drive the drugs over for them. In this case, a scenester named Mohammed Hadiji, who was behind the wheel of none other than Paul's black Mini Cooper, when he crashed the car on the M1 outside of London. Apparently, Hadiji had some injuries that required treatment at the hospital, but before the EMTs showed up, he was still able to unload the contraband and avoid serious charges. The reason this story concerns us is that Hadiji, who again recovered fully from his superficial injuries, was roughly Paul's build and had a similar hair color, and he was taken away on a stretcher from an accident in which Paul McCartney's actual honest-to-God car was smashed up. Naturally, some Beatles fans noticed and assumed that Paul was injured and indeed, Reeves reproduces a small feature from a 1967 Beatles fan magazine, assuring readers that while Paul's car was in an accident, the cute one himself was right as rain and wasn't even involved.
1: Meaning that an initial rumor, two years before the Paulus dead fever broke, clearly had at least some fans telling a story similar to the conspiracy's final form, though the alleged 1966 accident that would later be proposed didn't have any real-life correlate.
0: True. And then the second item that seems likely to have presaged and helped to generate the 1969 rumor is a song by an erstwhile singer-songwriter and eventual musical Svengali behind 70s middle-of-the-road rock stalwarts Grand Funk Railroad named Terry Knight.
1: And why are we going to talk about this guy?
0: Because during his brief and not particularly distinguished singer-songwriter career, he was invited to sign to Apple Corps Limited the record label that the Beatles created to put out their own and other artists' music. While he was touring the London offices in mid-68, he took the chance to observe a Fab Four recording session and had a front-row seat to the kind of in-group bickering that marked the beginning of the end of the greatest band in the history of the world. I warned you. Stories of the band's contentious dissolution are thick on the ground, especially since the masterful Peter Jackson-produced Get Back documentary gave lunatics like me a smorgasbord of footage of the fractious recording of the band's penultimate album, Let It Be, when they truly entered their final dysfunctional period as a going concern.
1: He know it's the last album released, but Abbey Road was the last one recorded.
0: The reason Mr. Knight's observations of the band's interpersonal strife are important is that while he passed on signing to Apple, he did channel his inspiration from the studio visit into a song titled St. Paul. It sounds like this. had to excerpt a few different sections so you could absorb the song's whole thing. We're sorry.
1: One would hope that a song that ended up as a key input for a legendary band's most legendary conspiracy theory would maybe not necessarily be good, but rather suck less.
0: Yeah, this, this song is a butt, and not a nice butt, like a really unappealing butt. A butt that has no aesthetic value, but constantly emits poop.
1: I want you all to know that this man used to write
0: music criticism. I'm a little rusty, Dana, but they get it. This is not, like, a good song. At all. But it is, for our purposes, important, in that its poorly written and overwrought lyrics combine allusions to the St. Paul of the Christian New Testament with the long-suffering, bass-playing, interpersonal-conflict-smoothing Beatle. And artless but mysterious lines like, You say it's the fool who plays it cool, sir.
1: That's a reference to the lyrics of Paul's masterpiece, Hey Jude.
0: And if tomorrow comes, you know they'll all hear St. Paul say, Let me take you down.
1: Again, a reference to a Beatles song. In this case, John's Strawberry Feels Forever, but also evocative of the idea of descending into the grave if you've already bought into the conspiracy mindset.
0: A reprise of that voice quotes, I read the news today, Oh Boy, the famous lines that introduce one of the band's greatest moments, the awe-inspiring Sgt. Pepper's ending, A Day in the Life, which also features the line,
2: in
0: a So, you know, this was low-hanging fruit for the conspiracy believers. Knight's opus was far from a hit song in the U.S. as a whole, but importantly for our story, it was a kind of minor hit in his native Michigan, specifically in the Detroit area that was one of the epicenters of the conspiracy rumor.
1: To review them, in addition to the deliberate fabrications of tricksters like Fred Labour, there were two stories. One of the unrelated crash of McCartney's car that injured but didn't kill a different guy. And the other, a mediocre song that cast Paul in a sort of theological and mystical role that might make him sound like a martyred, and therefore dead, musical saint. While poorly recapitulating a number of Beatles' lyrics and motifs. And these two real world stories seem to have formed the basis of the Paul is Dead myth.
0: Accurate. But I also want you all to hear the end of this song, because if I suffer, you suffer.
1: Boy, that really sounds like a copyright violation just waiting to be litigated.
0: It does, which leads us to one of the mysteries of this song that, at least according to Mr. Reeve, remains unsolved as of the most recent edition of his book. Why exactly did Knight's Forgotten Song end up being published by Macklen Music, the American subsidiary of the band's Northern Songs publishing company? And sure, this might be mysterious, except for the fact that Knight's song was temporarily pulled from production because the Beatles' lawyers sent a cease and desist letter to the record company based on Knight's very liberal and aforementioned use of Beatles lyrics and musical motifs. So it appears that Knight's people cut a deal with the Beatles people, and he was able to release the song while paying a chunk of the proceeds to the Beatles, along with the publishing rights.
1: That seems eminently plausible.
0: But even beyond the two likely honest-to-God real origin points of the later conspiracy, Reeve also points out some really confusing aspects to the story. For example, it seems like for dedicated Beatles fans who made up the core of the conspiracy theorizing, this rumor should have been absolutely terrible news. And yet nobody among these supposed believers reacted with tears and anguish to the idea that one of their heroes had died. Contrast, for example... The completely understandable and very public mourning that greeted the tragic, undeniably real assassination of John Lennon 11 years later.
1: That's an interesting point. These fans supposedly believed the real Paul was dead, but it made them intrigued and insistent rather than devastated and mournful. So it seems like they didn't really believe it?
0: I hate to bring up the topic we recently put to bed, but there is certainly an aspect of this conspiracy that reflects the hideous QAnon. That is, many clue hunters were more interested in the idea of group puzzle solving that everyone could participate in, and where they could feel like they were uncovering hidden truths, even if the story itself was completely implausible. Of course, no one ended up assaulting a major democracy center of government in the Beatles case. Reeve's book dutifully documents 140 distinct clues that the sleuths...
1: And when we say sleuths, we mean, again, very, very high and beetle-obsessed college kids
0: came up with based solely on the Beatles' own recordings. These include some that are kind of plausible if you accept the loony overall theory, including many of the aforementioned items like I Buried Paul. But to choose another essentially at random from this list, quote, In
1: the song Hey Bulldog, there is a lyric, You may think you know me, but you haven't got a clue. This is William Campbell saying that while he looks like Paul, he is not Paul.
0: Remember that Campbell is supposedly the Scotsman who was chosen to replace Paul and then was surgically altered to resemble him even more closely. However, as fans would surely know, that song was written and sung by John, not Paul. And also, we would observe, it doesn't on its face have anything whatsoever to do with the supposed conspiracy. The vast preponderance of these 140 clues are like this. To be fair to these detectives, and as we mentioned earlier, the Beatles did have a pronounced habit of toying with the more obsessive clue seekers in their fandom. Referring to his previous nonsense masterpiece, I Am the Walrus,
2: walrus. (laughs) Lennon
0: deliberately provoked new questions a year later with this line in Glass Onion on the White Album. what does that mean? Not a goddamn thing. It was deliberately put there to confuse the searchers. But when the conspirators ask, if Paul isn't dead, why are the Beatles leaving these clues that tell us he is? The most straightforward answer is, they're not. At least, not in the way that you mean. But then, of course, deliberate things like that glass onion mention, among others, blur the picture enough that some listeners could still feel justified in their beliefs. Also remember that the Beatles and their contemporaries were at the beginning of the rise of the rock album as major artistic statement, and the in-jokes the band put into such iconic pieces as their cover for the legendary Sergeant Peppers seemed, hell, probably were designed for the young people who were getting stoned in their millions and dropping the record onto the turntable for the 400th time to gaze deeply at as they listened, pondering the many visual and audio secrets to be found therein. Perhaps as a result of this, a conspiracist subgroup popped up whose suggestions were even more difficult to disprove, that being what came to be known as the Beatles hoax faction. These fans didn't believe Paul had actually died, but were positive the band had deliberately larded their work with clues that would cause fans to come to that false conclusion. This perspective was perhaps most effectively bolstered by the fact that, during the Paul is Dead phenomenon, the Beatles albums sold even better than they had before so that the recently released Abbey Road exceeded even the lofty sales expectations that had preceded its release. And so we meet once again one of our greatest nemeses, the idea that conspiracy theorists don't so much have to prove their wild allegations, but rather that sensible people are expected to prove these wild allegations wrong. Which given the numerous, yeah, but still, and, but what about this completely unrelated and unsubstantiated thing I just came up with, helps you understand why exasperated adults in the room, like columnist Ray Connolly in the London Evening Standard, were reduced to quotes like, McCartney is alive. I have this on very good authority, he told me himself. Or the long-suffering and aforementioned Beatles publicist Derek Taylor, who told DJ Russ Gibb, Paul McCartney isn't dead, and the only proof we have that he's alive at this point is that he is. You don't have to do any more than that to prove you're alive, except be alive. Which, you know, obviously. I mean, how well would you do if a bunch of uninformed lunatics told you confidently that you were killed several years ago and replaced by an imposter? How would you prove they were wrong?
1: But again, there is no indication whatever that the lads themselves did anything to create or encourage the remarkable example of shared delusion that is Paul's Paul is dead meme.
0: Perhaps the high point of the conspiracy period was Paul McCartney, the complete story told for the first and last time, a televised mock courtroom scene where famous real-life attorney F. Lee Bailey argued before a fake jury the case for Macca being several years dead and his band having covered the fact up with a remarkably good doppelganger and a great deal of skullduggery.
1: Jesuit would include a piece of this audio here, but the show was only aired once on a local New York station on November 30th, 1969, and the videotape completely vanished. As Reeves noted, it remains one of the most elusive and sought-after pieces of Beatles-related media among the truly devoted fandom.
0: That fake courtroom broadcast also happened to mark the end of the conspiracy's heyday. By early 1970, everyone but the super diehards had moved on to other obsessions, and those who were confused by the implausibility and brief ubiquity of the whole mishigas were left to ponder the what and why in retrospect. Some observers suggested it reflected the decline of religion in the modern world. Reeves quotes a popular columnist who noted, They've got it all wrong. It's God that's dead, not Paul McCartney. No one believes in anything anymore, and man has a deep need to believe. Remove his objects of belief, and he will invent others. The Beatles have become secular saints, and we invent mythology to fill a void. That was another AI, this time standing in for San Francisco Chronicle columnist Ralph J. Gleason. What can I say? I got a shiny new toy, and I'm going to overuse it for a while. While this might sound like an overblown explanation for the Paul is Dead phenomenon 50-plus years on, there's no doubt that the explosive global popularity of the Beatles and other youth culture stalwarts, occurring as it did simultaneously with the sharp decline in mainstream religion and many other institutions in the 1960s, sparked a number of conflicts, including the famous We're More Popular Than Jesus kerfuffle that led to widespread Beatles album burnings several years earlier. If you, as an American teenager, are offended by statements from a group of foreign singers which strike at the very basis of our existence as God-fearing, patriotic citizens, then we urge you to take your Beatle records, pictures, and souvenirs to the pickup point about to be named. And on the night of the Beatles' appearance in Memphis, August 19th, they will be destroyed in a huge public bonfire at a place to be named soon. We're close to wrapping things up here, but we have a few more fun items to talk about before we end the show. First, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that in addition to Terry Knight's St. Paul, there were at least four other songs released as quick cash-ins during the apex of this phenomenon. I don't think I'm going to shock anyone by revealing these songs are worth remembering only for their role in the conspiracy mania, but it's worth a quick listen to each, presented in my personal reverse order of quality.
1: Again, none of these are good. But some are less terrible than others.
0: Exactly. For my money, the worst of the lot is The Ballad of Paul by the not-so-cleverly named Mystery Tour, a studio group thrown together to record the fruits of a 20-something Baltimore couple's first stab at songwriting. Not that you can tell from these subtle, well-crafted lyrics.
2: From Sergeant Pepper. Falls into place an argument, an accident, an unseen champagne night, a left hand guitar on a fresh duck.
0: Slots two and three are kind of a toss up. They're both rough, garage-rocky, and not particularly notable, but I'm going to place Brother Paul by Billy Shears and the All-Americans.
2: Are you getting older or just getting colder? Brother Paul, where did you fall and are you still alive?
0: Just a bit below the effort by Zacharias and the Tree People for two reasons. First, the latter offers some tight vocal harmonies on the chorus, and second, it boasts a kind of clever title. We're all pallbearers. Get it?
1: I am not sure. I'm eager to hear the best of the
0: bunch. So Long, Paul is clearly a significant improvement on these, if only due to the professionalism and competence with the Widow. If only due to the professionalism and competence with which it was composed, played, produced, and sung. That's hardly surprising because the credited artist, Werbly Finster was the pen name of the undeniably talented Spanish guitarist Jose Feliciano, fresh off his wildly popular cover of The Doors' Light My Fire.
1: This song, though, failed to crack the top 100 and sold mostly to those who were already neck deep in the hunt for clues.
0: Let's see, what else did we want to cover? Oh yeah, while we learned earlier that the car accident that likely inspired the later rumor happened in early 1967, the date usually given for Paul's fatal crash by conspiracists is November 9th, 1966, seemingly a random date when Paul wasn't even in London having flown to Kenya for a safari with his then-girlfriend.
1: But I'm guessing something happened on that date.
0: It sure did. Somebody at some point in the story chose that date as an allusion to the event that many saw as the beginning of the death of the Beatles. Specifically, that's the exact day that John Lennon attended an art show and met Yoko Ono. And so, as the 70s dawned, the Beatles finally broke up, started releasing solo albums, and the world mourned and moved on. Oddly, the Paul is Dead motif stuck around, though. Even if no one believed it, it became part of the nostalgia with which people looked back on the strange days of their youth as they inevitably aged into the boomers we all know and love today.
1: Hi, Mom and Dad!
0: Even McCartney has used the motif whimsically, naming his 1993 album Paul is Live, and on the cover reprising his walk across the infamous Abbey Road, this time trailing behind his dog.
1: And crucially, wearing shoes.
0: My personal favorite moment in the post-life of the theory was when Macca appeared on the endearingly silly Chris Farley Show segment on SNL. Hey,
2: you remember when you were with the Beatles and
0: you were supposed to be dead and, uh, there's all these clues that, like, uh... He'd play some song backwards and it'd
2: say like "Paul is dead," and uh, everyone thought that you were dead or something. And, yeah. yeah. And that was um, a hoax, right? Yeah, I wasn't really dead. Right.
0: Finally, we should acknowledge that, while as we noted the world has long moved on, treating Paul is Dead as a sort of nostalgic punchline, there are those who still take this whole thing almost absurdly seriously, as this shows longtime listeners probably suspected. For example, one YouTuber seems to think that Billy Shears, the alias for Ringo Starr that the band used most famously on the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, Is actually the name of the guy who replaced Paul upon his death. He proves this by playing two different renditions of the Beatles classic Here, There, and Everywhere, one by a pre death.
1: That is, pre 1967.
0: Paul. And one by a post-death...
1: And therefore, actually song by an
0: impostor. ...version that, based on the fashion Paul sporting in the accompanying image, seems to date from the early 1990s. In other words, more than 25 years after the first recording.
2: Watching their eyes and hoping I've always been I will be here, there and everywhere. Here, there, and everywhere.
0: The video's creator tries to make his case by pointing out that the two singers sound a bit different.
1: You know, the way you sound a little bit different than the you of 25 years ago.
0: And that they sing certain words for different lengths of time.
1: Perhaps never having heard of singers interpreting their own work when singing it live in order to keep the material fresh for themselves and their audience.
0: This video is fascinating in its complete failure to convince anyone who's ever heard any artist perform any song on two different occasions, but the current YouTube standard-bearer of the quixotic Justice for James Paul McCartney movement is almost certainly a channel titled... Remind me, Dana?
1: Um, it's called Justice for James Paul McCartney?
0: Yes, and it's clear that this person is sick and tired of the fake Paul a man he names as Billy Shepard, and his willing collaborators covering up the cute beetle's tragic and early death. And he...
1: The creator of this channel is never actually identified as a man, but come on, can you imagine a woman spending this much time on this?
0: The presumable he behind the channel attempts to prove his point through an array of videos where he has collected various clues. Unfortunately, these use the popular format where text is displayed on screen in lieu of vocal narration, so, any audio excerpts I might grab would not be as evocative as I might hope. So, I'll just try and give you a feel for the type of argumentation we're dealing with here. For example, he finds it more than a little suspicious that while Paul, and presumably John, took the lead in the band's many early interviews, these days Ringo puts the fake Paul,
1: our channel creator cleverly calls this doppelganger, Fall,
0: in his place by regularly talking first when the two living Beatles are interviewed together.
1: Wow. It is basically the Sapruta film of the Paul is Dead conspiracy.
0: Indeed. Super convincing. The rest of this stuff is just as airtight, using a throw spaghetti at a wall and see what sticks approach, including suggesting 9-11 truther style that a news report was broadcast in the New York, New Jersey area on the day of the 1967 accident, accurately reporting the real Paul's death, but that it was quickly covered up by the powers that be.
1: No explanation of how the story could have spread to the east coast of the U.S. while somehow skipping the band's native U.K.
0: There are also videos highlighting the supposed facial differences between Paul and Fall, even after the latter's imagined plastic surgery. Plus, an interview supposedly filmed a few days after Paul's father's death, in which Fall isn't upset enough at the man's passing.
1: Maybe because it wasn't his father after all? Dun dun dun.
0: Ghoulish, right? And of course, there are a number of videos highlighting the supposed album art and lyrical clues we covered earlier, including at least one that was new to us and works as an audio excerpt. And so we present the argument that the famous chorus of Let It Be, when played backward, repeatedly declares, He is dead.
1: Does it? You decide. <laughs>
0: The main thing I'm left with, having perused this strange YouTube memorial shrine slash well, you can't call it true crime.
1: Maybe fake crime.
0: Yeah, that's the ticket. It's both a shrine and a monument to a fake crime. But the attitude that pours off this thing is that the creator is just fucking incensed that somehow the fake Paul and the other Beatles, and presumably the many others who participated in this grand cover-up have never been held to account for the thing he imagines they did long ago. Which just goes to show you that a conspiracy theory doesn't have to be particularly dangerous or earth-shattering to take over the minds of its believers, spreading like a very paranoid strain. This has been a Paranoid Strain Which is why we're not going to do the whole credits spiel. As usual, I'd like to thank Dana and her dulcet Northern European interjections, as well as the slightly uncanny, but pretty fun to create, pronouncements of our new AI buddies. I want to give an extra big shout out to Daniel Arizona, who composed that banger of a Paul is Dead theme song you've heard throughout this story way back in 2018, and whom I've made to wait almost six years to finally hear it in an episode. In honor of his songwriting chops, I've included a full-length version at the very end of the theme song. Stick around to hear it in all of its majesty. And with that, there's nothing left to do except remind you that I'll be in your ears with the first episode of our huge new UFO and Alien series in a couple of weeks. And that in the meantime, the world may be chaotic, but it's not out to get you, or at least not you specifically.
1: forever, but also evocative of the idea of descending into the grave if you've already bought into the conspiracy mindset. <laughs> when I was little, I thought it was that strawberries f- feel forever, like they they have feelings for forever. And I just always sort of puzzled about that. I was like, that's maybe they, I mean, maybe maybe they, they sort of keep having feelings after you eat them or maybe when you poop out the seeds and they turn into new strawberry plants like maybe that's the feelings or oh my god maybe whole fruit is sentient and you know sentient. it's just i was quite old when i was like oh oh it's a it's a field i see